Lord, as we come to you tonight, our, our prayer is as of the psalmist, and we pray that you would teach our lips your name to bless. Uh, Lord God, we pray that we would be under the instruction of the Holy Spirit uh, this evening. Lord, we pray that uh, we might encounter you, that we might go away from this encounter very much changed, and also uh, renewed, Lord God, how that is a prayer that we have of our hearts and of our church, uh, that we would have a, a new zeal for the honor of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as we come to this wonderful portion of Scripture that many of us know so well. Uh, Lord God, we ask that you would shed new light on old magnificent truths uh, that we'd hear from you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me. I am not really um, one uh, for detailed planning uh, when it comes to the organization of a sermon calendar or a sermon series. I'm not really one for detailed planning. So if you were to ask some of my colleagues, if you were to go to them and say, what are you going to preach on the 13th of October 2025, and some of my colleagues would be able to look at you and be able to give you an answer, probably quite a categorical answer, and for a whole raft of reasons, some good and some not so good, um, I would not be able to give you an answer to that, that question. I'm not much of a planner long term when it comes to sermon series, but because of that, I absolutely love it when things unexpectedly kind of click together. I uh, maybe know what I mean, but when there's sort of coincidences and these sorts of things, you know the sort of idea, you know what I'm getting at, with, uh, without any planning whatsoever on my behalf, let's say a sermon series closes just when I'm about to go off an annual leave, love it when that sort of thing happens, that sort of coincidence, or uh, you know, we finish a big long section of scripture just when we're getting to Advent, I love it, it's brilliant. Ah, what's the obvious thing to say? That's not what happened this summer <laughs> at all. Uh, I went away on annual leave a couple of weeks ago, and we left things smack bang in the middle of a chapter, smack bang in this, smack bang in the middle of a section of scripture. Now, sometimes that would definitely be an issue. But I do not think it's an issue for us at St. Pete's this time around. See, is it not true? Correct me if I'm wrong. Such is the grandeur of the Christ hymn that we looked at last time out that surely that material in Philippians 2 is still reasonably fresh in our memories. Isn't that correct? Such is the magnificence of Philippians 2. We can still, can't we? If you were here a few weeks ago, we can still remember the beauty of those. What did we see last time we were together? Do you remember? We saw the incredible condescension of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw from Scripture that right at the heart of our God is a willingness from God to pour himself out for people like you and people like me. We saw that the Lord Jesus Christ was willing to leave his heavenly home and condescend to embrace shame. And what sort of shame? 
the disgusting shame of death, even death on a cross? Have we possibly forgotten any of this? I know categorically that if I was to say to the young people tonight, what is kenosis? (laughs) I know that the kids in unison would be able to declare that it is the self-emptying of Christ. Would we? Or am I kidding myself? On maybe. Well, it's absolutely wonderful as those words are in Philippians 2, the words that we looked at last time out. The question remains, I suppose, is that it? (laughs) So Christ has condescended. He has become obedient to death, even death on a cross. But the matter at hand then is, well, is that the end of the story? So I ask you, is the message of the gospel simply the message of the willing humiliation of God? Is that the message of the gospel, full stop? And you would say back to me, of course, no. And so I would ask you, as we start, to look with me at the first two words of our section tonight in verse 9. What are the first two words? We've seen the condescension of Jesus, the willing humiliation of Jesus. He's condescended to the death on a cross. What's the first two words? Do you see them? Therefore, God. Isn't it marvelous? Do you, do you not see? Do you not feel the implication of that? What are we going to do in here tonight at St. Peter's? What do we get to do? We get to consider tonight the Father's response to the obedience of the Son. doesn't get better than this. doesn't get bigger than this tonight. You and I get to consider how it is that God the Father has responded to Christ's humiliation. And we get to consider together what that will mean in the end of all things. What will it mean for you? What will it mean for all of God's created order? That's what we get to look at this evening in Philippians. So, you know what I'm going to say? Everybody knows what I'm going to say. Let's have the Bible open in front of us. Let's make sure that the young people can see it. You at home, if you're watching the the live stream, grab a, a copy of Scripture. The first thing that we get to see. So it's God's response, isn't it? To this willing humiliation from the Son. First thing I want you to consider is that the Father honors He honors his son. That's the first thing we've got to get our teeth into. The father honors the son. Um, uh, You know from this morning that some of the kids have started school, new schools, this past week, this past fortnight. So my son, Colin, started secondary school uh, this past week. So Colin started school. Uh, He started school. (laughs) But I wasn't prepared for what that would be like for, for his old man, for, 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 for me. So he started school, but it kind of brought up all of these memories, you know, of what it was like for me all those years ago. I wasn't expecting that, but, you know, this week, all these flashbacks of what it was like to go off and start secondary school. Well, I have to apologize to you because I'm, I'm going to kind of make you go down that route as as well. Because if we are going to understand this evening, God, the Father's response to the Son, then I have to give you a word. And it's a word that's going to have you spiraling back 
uh, to your time in school. It's going to have you going back, flashback to, you know, a third year maths class, maybe all those years ago. Because here's the word. Maybe you know where I'm going with this. Apologies for this. It's the word parabola. Uh, does that send us back to our schooling parabola? We maybe remember what that is, right? Kids, young people, do we know what a parabola is? So think of mass. Think of a graph. Yes. And think of a U-shaped curve. The young people got it? A U-shaped curve. Okay, something that goes down and then very equally goes back up again. That is a parabola. That's a parabola. And Christian friends, as you come to Philippians 2, is that not what you're confronted with here? Because, yes, we have seen the descent of the Lord Jesus Christ, haven't we? We've seen his willing humiliation as in the first part of a parabola, this descent. But what does the Holy Spirit confront you with in in verse 9 here? What immediately happens? Do you see the language? Therefore God... Next bit. Highly exalted him. Do you see it? There has been this almost um, immediate movement up the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you follow? That God the Father's response to the obedience of his son. It wasn't to, to leave Jesus lying dead in the grave, was it? The Father's response was, was not to continue to forsake his son as he did on the cross. You see it, don't you, that there has been, immediately, there has been this great vindication from his father, that the father has honored, gone on to honor his son. In fact, what I want you to do, actually, is to appreciate, get your teeth into the language Paul uses. So look at the, look at the text again in verse 9. Now, do you see that word, exalted? You see it, exalted? Brilliant word. In the... Uh, original language, what you've got in front of you is actually two words almost. So it's a word in two parts. It's like a compound word. So get this. I love this. So what is Paul saying? He is saying that God the Father, listen to it, he super exalted his son. He hyper exalted his son. Do you see it? That because of the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ, God has rewarded his son, rewarded him with the greatest possible glory. So God the Father has brought Jesus from the lowest, lowest possible depth. And the Father's hand has brought him to the highest possible heights that Christ now, as I am speaking to you here, that Christ Jesus is seated in the place of supreme dominion over all things and power and, 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 and splendor, the place where he is able to declare. And it is accurate and it is truthful. Christ can see all of it, all authority in heaven and earth, all of it has been given to me. He has been super hyper-exalted. Now, hopefully you're you're with me when I say it's wonderful to consider the exaltation of of your Savior. Doesn't it make you want to rip your mask off (laughs) and and sing hallelujahs to the Lord Jesus Christ? Don't do it, please, because I will get into trouble for that, I'm sure. But don't we also perhaps need to consider the practical 
realities that Paul's confronting us with here. Now, let me put you to the test, those who were here a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the previous section. Now, put you to the test. Can you remember what we saw as being Paul's purpose in this text in Philippians 2? Now, do you remember what we said? We said that this was not just theoretical. We said that this was not just theology for theology's sake. Do you remember what we said? What's Paul's concern? Paul's concern is with Christian living. Paul's concern is with our, your sanctification. If you want to remember it, look at verse 5. Look at it. He sets forth Christ, do you remember, as this example of, wait a minute, humility. And then what does he say? As he says to you and to me, we've got to have this mind amongst ourselves. Now, with that in view, do you not see what Paul is doing here? In showing us Christ's subsequent exaltation, he is reminding you and me and the church of our eschatological hope. Like to push you, to push me to humble servitude, what is Paul doing? He is reminding you and me that we have a parabola of our own. Isn't that amazing to consider it? That though the exaltation of Jesus Christ is absolutely properly unique, what does scripture make clear to you? That one day, the church of Jesus Christ across the world, one day we will enjoy a vindication from the Father's hand. One day the church of Jesus Christ, even in Afghanistan, One day, the church will know the honoring of God. And does that not spur you? Does that not move us at St. Peter's? We know what the world's like. You look out there, what's the world like? The world's like this rabid dog, desperate for admiration. People want esteem. We want recognition. People want honor. But you and I, as Christians, we we don't have to be like that in any way why not we can we can get into the weeds of it we can be humble with each other we can serve each other why what does scripture make clear second timothy 2 one day we will reign with him we know that what is true of jesus christ here in philippians in a sense will be true of us we know it we know it you can repeat it with me whoever exalts himself will be yep humbled yeah what's the next part of it Whoever humbles themselves, they will be in the last exalted. So we see that the father, what does he do with the son? He honors the son. That is part of his response. Now, if you're with me, let's move to a second element that we see in Philippians 2. And that is that the father names the son. So the father honors the son. Secondly, the father names the son. What do you think about names? Names in our culture, in Scotland, I suppose they're not all of that significant, are they? Names in Scotland. If you're a parent in here, what were you doing when you named uh, your, your kids? What were you doing? Some of us looked at the Bible and we, we looked at names that meant something, I suppose, to us from the Bible. Is that right for you if you're a parent? Um, some of us, when we were naming our kids, we kind of thought about trying to honor, um, honor somebody in our family from the previous generation or two. Is that right? Um, 
I'll let you into the situation in our home. So my dad's name is Colin. <laughs> Catherine's brother's name is Colin. I don't know how many Collins we've got in our family. So our son never stood a chance. <laughs> he was always getting an old man's name. <laughs> um, but names in our culture, they don't mean particularly all that much. They're not all of that significant. I think we know as Christians, having been in churches for a while, that it's not like that in the Bible. And there are a couple of things here. Like we know that names in the Bible very often actually meant something, didn't they? They spoke to a person's character sometimes. They spoke to a person's situation. We know that. What's the other thing we know? <laughs> we know that names in the Bible sometimes changed. Don't we? I love this quote from... Uh, uh, Jim Boyce, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, he says this. He says that names in Scripture, names in the Bible, sometimes changed, the next bit, to keep up with a person's situation. I like that. Do you like that idea? The name in the Bible changed to keep up with a person's situation. You can all, if I was, you know, you could all chuck out examples, can you? Abraham. Yeah, okay, we could go on. We could get Sarah and Sarah, and we can uh, Jacob Israel, New Testament, where's the obvious one? Uh, Simon, Peter. Ah, that's an interesting one, though, isn't it? Because there we see that the new name sometimes just is, an, is affixed to the old name. He's become Simon Peter. Now, if you look at the Bible with me here, isn't it interesting to see what you find in verse 9? Look at this. So we learn that part of this honoring of the son, so part of the exaltation, do you see what happens? That Jesus is granted a, a name. A name. Now, that seems interesting to us, but am I wrong to think that we're scratching our heads a little bit? Because what is the question then that needs addressing? Come on, what's the question that we would ask of that? So, so we're saying that in the exaltation of the Son, he has granted a name. What's the question? The question, well, well, well then, which name is this that's in view? What is the name that the Father has bestowed here? Well, can I ask you to look closely at, at the text? I think you can see that we've got two options at hand. Which name is it? Two options. You can probably see that a lot of people they linger on the fact that the name must be the name Jesus. Now, do you see that from the text? God bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. Read the next bit with me. So that at the name of Jesus. So I wonder, does that conclude the matter? Is this highly exalted name from God, is it the name Jesus? This is what I want to do. I want to show you that that is not not the case at all. This is the heart of the sermon. Are you drifting off? <laughs> Don't miss this. I want you to understand that the highly exalted name that the Father has bestowed upon the Son, listen carefully, this highly exalted name is the name Lord. Lord. Let me show it to you. Let me prove it to you. Will you do this with me? Will you pick up your Bible? Have it in your hand. First thing, look at the text. Now, do you notice the momentum of the text doesn't stop with the name Jesus? Are you looking down? 
Do you see it? Do you notice that, that Paul carries on, the momentum moves on into verse 11. And I would ask you, what is the apex? What is the climax of Paul's thought? Look at it. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. Where's the apex? That Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's the first thing. Okay. Second thing I want you to do. You've got scripture in your hands. Please, can, please will you do this with me? We look to Isaiah 45, verse 23. Let's do this. So let the kids see it in here. People at home, get to Isaiah 45, verse 23. This will transform our understanding of Philippians chapter 2. Isaiah 45, verse 23. Now you're all going there, right? We're all going there. As you go there, let me tell you what you're going to find in Isaiah 45. This is an amazing portion of scripture. It's a portion of scripture that shows you, speaks of the utter and complete sovereignty of Almighty God. So Isaiah 45 is all about the fact that God is over. He rules over everything. Everyone. Everything that's been created. Now, let me give you a couple of things to look at. So you got it there in front of you? Verse 23. Look at the language of the second part of verse 23. Isn't that amazing? Every knee will bow, every tongue swear allegiance, every tongue confess. Do you, do you see when Paul is writing Philippians 2, where does he want your mind to be? He wants your mind to be right smack bang in Isaiah chapter 45. That's the first thing. Second thing that I want you to see is who it is that is squarely in the spotlight and in focus. Look at the next verse. In fact, if you're using the ESV, the heading to the chapter makes it abundantly clear. Who is in focus? What title is this all about? At whose name? Do you see at whose name? Every knee bow, do you see it? It is the name Yahweh. It is the name what? The name Lord. And as you see that, don't you also see what Paul is doing in Philippians? What's he doing in Philippians? Yes, you would say that he's associating Jesus with this Old Testament prophecy. He's saying to you, Jesus Christ is God. But also Paul's doing this. He is showing you that part of the exaltation of the Son by the Father was the Father bestowing on him a name above every name, a transcendent name, the most glorious name. Part of the exaltation was the declaration that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord, not, come on, that there was ever a time in human history that he was not divine, but that there was a time in human history, a time in history where God the Father, looking on with delight in his son and his obedience, God the Father pronounced that name. He declared that name. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. Who is he? Is he merely the Messiah? Is he merely the Christ? Is he merely the Son of Man, the one coming in the clouds? Who is your Jesus? He is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is Lord of all. As we consider Philippians 2, you're with me. I am sure when I say that we are on really hallowed ground. Aren't we in Philippians 2? Isn't it marvelous to think about these things? But what is the mantra that we need to have going round in our head every time we're thinking about Scripture? You and I need to be repeating to each other context, context, context. 
What is the purpose of this text? What was the author of this text doing? Now, to answer that, I am going to ask the kids two questions. Don't worry, you're not really going to be on the spot. We'll make it rhetorical. You can mouth the answers, and some of you are wearing masks, so, you know, be none the wiser. But as I ask the kids these questions, I want all of us to think about the answers that they're given. Think about the context. Where was Paul when he wrote the letter of Philippians? You see, he's in jail? Yeah. Where? What city? Yes. Rome. Second question to the young people. What was special about Philippi? It was a Roman colony. So these people in Philippi that Paul is writing to, they're Roman citizens. Do you not, friends, now begin to see how marvelous and special and cherished this must have been at the Philippian church? These are the people who are pressed on on every side. So these are the people who are surrounded by the cult of Roman worship. Everyone around them is worshiping Caesar. And then Paul's letter arrives. And it is read aloud. And what are they reminded about? It is not Caesar who's Lord. It is not Caesar who reigns. It is Jesus Christ who is Lord. And surely that must have encouraged them. But does it not also provide strength for us as Christians in Scotland today? Because I know where we're at, a lot of us in this church just now, kind of dismayed about our governing institutions. Isn't that true? Holyrood and Westminster and responses to Afghanistan and some people reading through the guidance to schools and transgender issues and we find ourselves a sea almost and dismayed about these things and what do we have to keep squarely in view? What does God remind us of tonight? Who is it that reigns? Anyone in Holyrood reigning in Scotland? Anyone in Westminster reigning? No, who is it that reigns? We can say with the early church, Jesus Christ is Lord, can't we? Acts 2.36, what do we know? God has made this Jesus, this Jesus, whom you crucify, both Lord and Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. So we see that the father in response is vindicating his son. He honors his son. He names his son. Uh, the last thing this evening, that is that the Father also glorifies the Son. Um, so what have we seen? If you, you're with me this evening, we've seen that the Father's response. So he exalts, he names. Right. At the beginning of this sermon, I gave you two words to look at, didn't I? Therefore God. So we're closing, we're coming into land, if you like, if you'll allow that. I want to give you Two more words to look at. So it's the first two words of verse 10. Might seem insignificant, but please find them. What are the first two words? I don't know what translation of the Bible you have, but they should be. So that. Now, I wonder, just linger on that for a moment. Just let me leave that there. So that. Now, do do you see the implication? What are we about to look at? We're about to see the end goal that the father had in exalting his son. Isn't that something? 
So what does that mean, the end goal? So you and I are about to look at, you know, I'm sure you can stick with me for this. We are about to consider the parousia, the last day. So we're about to be shown by Paul the time where all of humanity will come to Jesus Christ and we will bow and we will worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We will praise his name. We're about to look at that. Let me just, please, let me point you to one or two things about that day. That day is coming quickly. It is just around the corner. Let me point out one or two things about it. First of all, I want you to see its appropriateness, the appropriateness of the worship of Jesus. Would you look at the end of the section in verse 11? Look at this. Look at the very end of verse 11. So you've got every knee will bow. You've got every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. And then Paul adds, to the glory of God the Father. Now, do you see what I mean about appropriateness of the worship of Jesus Christ? Like, what does the Bible make clear to you? Think about Paul and Barnabas refuting worship. What about Peter with Cornelius refuting worship? The Bible makes clear to you that to praise anything else on this earth other than the Lord Jesus Christ, other than God himself, it is incorrect, it is wrong, it is sinful, it is wicked. Not this day. Not this day that is coming. Like, do you see it? That with Jesus Christ being God himself... With there being this true bond of eternal intimacy between Father and Son on this day that is coming to us all, this is appropriate worship. That the praise of God the Son on that day will resound to the eternal glory of God the Father. This worship is coming. This will be appropriate. Second thing that I want to point you to is the all-encompassing nature of this day that is, is coming. Now, I'll ask you this. Who is it that will worship Jesus on this last day? Now, you would all have an answer to that, I know. I'll change the question. Who is it from this text that would worship, that will worship Jesus? Now, have a look at verse 10. And do you see the threefold division here? Do you notice it? Who is going to worship Jesus? First of all, what does it say? Those in? Those in heaven. Now, come on, isn't that marvelous? Isn't it? So what are we talking about, friends? We are talking about the whole angelic realm on that day is going to worship Jesus. So seraphim, cherubim, the archangels. Now, let's add to it. Come on. All of our saved loved ones that have gone before us, all of the church triumphant. All of them swept up with the angelic realm into the worship of Jesus Christ. Who's going to worship him? Those in heaven. What's the next bit of it? Those on earth. That's easy, is it? That's all who will still be living at the time of Christ's return. They will be whipped up into this worship. Now, what is the third section of it? Those in heaven, those on earth, last bit, and those under the earth. Doesn't that make you rejoice? Who's that? We're talking about the devil. 
himself and all that those who are with him, all of his demons. We are talking about all of unrepentant humanity, all of them forced to give unwilling praise. Now I'm going to read out this quote and I love this quote. We're asking who will worship on this day? Listen, the whole body of created intelligent beings from all departments of the universe on this day they will bow and they will worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will worship? Everyone will worship. So if we see the appropriateness, the all-encompassing nature of the worship, then of course, you know what we've got to do. We've got to think about the actual activity. Do, Do you notice, you've got to have noticed that there are two parts and two sides to what's going to happen in those moments on that last day. What's the first one? You could all say it. Every knee. Every knee is going to bow. Now that is such an easy image for us to understand. Isn't it? I mean, we just have to think about those of you who watch The Crown on Netflix. Dearie me. (laughs) But we can also think about those who, who go and receive a knighthood in MBE at the palace. What is this idea of a, a knee bow? We know it's an image of obesity. It's an image of homage. Isn't it? Do you see what's going to happen to you? On that day as you see Jesus Christ revealed, such will be the weight of the glory of his name, the way of his glory, that your legs are going to give way beneath you and you're going to fall and you're going to bow to Jesus Christ. In that moment, you know what's going to happen? The psalm we're just about to sing, Psalm 110, will be at last truly fulfilled. In that moment, God will make his enemies a footstool before our Lord. Every knee will bow to Jesus. But there's, come on, two sides to this coin, isn't there? And again, we could all say it easily. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I am a total failure, abject failure, because I've thought long and hard this week about how possibly to illustrate this idea You know, this deafening, this deafening confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, and I come up entirely short. Uh, A couple of years ago, I went, I was living in London, as you probably know, jumped on the tube at Christmas time, and I ticked that box that you're supposed to tick when you're in London at Christmas, and I went to the Royal Albert Hall. Have you been there? Quite impressive. Went to the Royal Albert Hall to hear Handel's Messiah at Christmas time. I have never seen a choir quite like that. So many people, vast choir. And here's the problem with it. So many people in the, in the audience know that music. So they're joining in. That's irritating. But they're joining in with the choir. So there I am, surrounded literally by thousands and thousands of people singing. And I have to tell you that even that sort of an image, it in no way compares to the volume of noise that you will hear in your ears at the perusia. Do you understand that it will be deafening on the last day? And you picture it, the crowd before you, as vast as the, just 
innumerable. You look in every direction to the horizon, and there are people everywhere you look. Fast number. And in the center, in the center of it all is a throne. And on that throne is a lamb who was slain. On the throne is the Lord. And what happens in that moment? What happens? We all fall. And I tell you, there will be a cacophony of noise. It will be deafening because we will all have one word on our lips. We will all declare. All people from all ages, from all nations will declare, Lord, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord of all. So if we see the appropriateness, the all-encompassing nature of it, we see the activities, then we have to end this sermon. We end it with application. Because I think you know, regardless of your spiritual state, you know that on that day, though the, the, the crowd is vast on that day, there will only be two groups of people present There will be two groups of people. So my question for you as we end is at the Perusia, as time stops, which of the two groups will you be in? That's my question to you. At the Perusia, before the Lord Jesus Christ, will you be amongst those who have lived their life in entire and complete rebellion, rejection, and unbelief? Is that you? If so, you need, to, you need to hear me. That on that very moment, just before you are led away, just before you are taken to everlasting damnation, just before that happens, I assure you, you will bow. You will bow to Jesus. But the thing you need to know is that at that moment, you will bow with such regret in your heart. You will bow with such remorse, overwhelming remorse. I plead with you, don't be amongst that group Don't be amongst those who remain unbelieving. Do, even tonight, what Paul tells you to do in Romans. Now listen very carefully. What does he say? Paul says this to you. Today, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you do that today, if you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth today that Jesus Christ is Lord. What does he say? You will be saved. I urge you, repent of your sin, believe in Jesus Christ. But there's a second group. There's a second group. And so I wonder, on that day when Christ returns and time finishes, will you be amongst those who have, by God's grace alone, rested in the Lord Jesus Christ? If so, aren't you with me? Isn't it a thrill? Doesn't it push us to humble servitude? Can't we serve each other? Why? Because one day you're going to see with your eyes Jesus 
You will see him there. He will be in your, your eye line. And I, I, do you not agree that on that day, at that moment, we're going to bow, but how are we going to do it? We're going to bow willingly. He is there, Jesus Christ. We're going to bow, and we are going to bow with such gratitude to God, aren't we? And why? Listen, Christ humbled himself to death even death on a cross. He's done it to win us for himself. He has been vindicated. And on that day, he will be revealed to all as Lord. May it be that before that day, may it be in just a moment, may it be this week as we go every minute of our lives, may it be that we praise the name of Jesus Christ. May we bless and praise his holy name. And all to the eternal glory of God the Father. Friends, let's bow and let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, Philippians 2. We thank you for what you have spelled out for us and shown us in these words. And we, 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 we wonder... And we marvel at the fact that you would do such great and beautiful things for people who rebel against you, sin against you. All of us in here as Christians, we look back and we are amazed at our sin and yet you have done everything for our salvation. We thank you that not on us, but by your grace, we will one day stand before the throne of Jesus Christ and we will bow and we will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name.